humans are able to create because we are made in the image of God, because God is a creative person. So in the creative process, we often experience what we call the flow, the creative flow state. And that creative flow state interact with your spirit and your mind. That part can never be replicated. The mental state of being completely immersed that you receive intuition or even for some of us, we can receive divine revelation. That part of creative process can never be duplicated. However, generative AI refers to the unsupervised or semi-supervised machine learning algorithm in order to generate new data that follow all the boundaries of the model of the real data. So that's why it makes it believable. But we are able to know the difference because like what I said before, AI can never have causal analysis. AI doesn't include the scope of absolute truth. AI cannot elicit emotions. And so the best it could do is to synthesize data. It seems like we're wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world, full of uncertainty, is yet to be born. Like the poet Dante, we find ourselves in a darkened wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante's journey through darkness with the light of reason. But then Beatrice illuminated his path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At the Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Gretchen Huizinga. I'm a research fellow at AI and Faith and a principal investigator with the Beatrice Institute's project, Being Human in an Age of Artificial Intelligence. What makes humans special? And what does it mean to flourish on the frontier of a technological future? My guest today is Joanna Ng. She was formerly the head of research and the director of the Center for Advanced Studies at IBM Canada, and over the course of her seven-year tenure there, attained the title of IBM Master Inventor because she holds 49 patents, has published more than 20 peer-reviewed technical papers, and has written two computer science research agenda books. She's now running her own AI startup focusing on augmented cognition assistance, and has just published a new book called Being Christian 2.0. Instead of losing heart, let's start over. Joanna Eng, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Wanda to be invited. So as a level set for the rest of the interview, and because you're the first guest on this podcast who not only knows how the sausage is made, but you've actually made it, tell us from a technical insider's point of view, what is AI today? And maybe more importantly, what isn't it? Okay, so... Let's put it in proper perspective. Artificial intelligence started in 1950 when Alan Turing published a landmark paper called Can Machine Think? And that devised the Turing machine using human as a benchmark to conclude if machine can think. Turing did not coin the term AI in 1956, in a summer conference in Dartmouth College, there was a workshop in the conference with six researchers from MIT and Carnegie Mellon presenting. And basically, they were presenting the work of AI. And that's how out of that workshop in that conference in Dartmouth College in 1956, the term was coined. These six researchers coined the term. Well, they define AI as the construction of computer program that engage in tasks that are currently more satisfactory performed by humans because of their higher level mental process. So some of those examples of higher order brain function include these tasks such as speech recognition, computer vision, natural language processing, generating content as we know it. So let's talk about what AI is not. AI, like other technology, is a tool created and by human and used by human. There is nothing mythical about it other than <laughs> how Hollywood wants to mythicize it. 
Fundamentally, in the bare bone, it uses mathematics and statistics to derive abstract models from data being fed and use the models to do predictions and projections. That's it. It's all math. Many scientists and technologists from the field who know AI all agree to say AI is not intelligent at all. Kate Crawford, a professor in New York, um, Southern California, uh, and also a researcher in Microsoft, lately published a book in August of last year called Agnes of AI. And the Atlas she, of AI. Agnes, Atlas of AI. Yeah, Atlas of AI, yeah. And she basically say AI, like the rest of us who are in the field, say AI is not intelligent because, for example, it can only do correlations in statistics, which is uh, how the data relate and the patterns relate, but it doesn't do causal analysis. It can never answer why. It cannot do common sense judgment. And it totally depends on the data, which we don't call out the biggest flaw of it all, which is the absence of absolute truth, because whatever is the truth is in the data. So I'll give you an example why that is so flawed. So one project I did with U of Maryland was to process the medical data from a couple millions of veteran health data in the database. And everyone was normal from a high blood pressure point of view because 95% of them had high blood pressure. So if you have a blood pressure of 165, you are normal. Whereas in Canada, they ask you to call 911. Okay, but that goes to say in the absence of the truth that what is considered normal as blood pressure, as the absolute truth of anything lower than 130, in the absence of that truth, the truth lies in the data. So therefore, you know, 95% of people having a blood pressure, uh, 165, did not make it not high blood pressure, even though you know, the norm is hyperpressure. Let's just go to show why it is not intelligent because of the incapacity to handle independent truth, okay? And let's talk, one last point is about effective computing, which is the AI science on human emotion. So far, it can only detect human emotions, of course, with lots of biases. Like if you throw in a different culture, it wouldn't be able to detect it. But it can never elicit emotions because emotions come from the deeper being. So the mechanism of why seeing a ribcage baby from Africa would bring tears to human as emotion is because of the human's capacity for compassion. And you can say, you can make an um, artificial association of certain pictures would create sadness, but it doesn't come from a deeper force. So th- that's to put AI in its proper place. It's being over-dramatized. Right, right, right. Well, I love that you brought in Kate Crawford's book. I've read that too. And one of the biggest questions or I would say problems with AI because it's not intelligent, but it can, it can trick us because it's so good at some of the things that it does that it makes us think there's understanding behind it or cognition. And so, and this gets back to Turing also in the famous Turing test. Could we believe that an AI is intelligent? And so there's that funny little interstitial space where it's like, okay, it isn't, but it seems like it is and it will fool a lot of people. So we, we go ahead and call it intelligent, but that's, that's a whole other pod. We could go on a entire podcast. Mm-hmm, about that. Absolutely. Um, let's not, let's talk a bit about, uh, this, what I would call an inevitable march in some people's minds toward artificial superintelligence or ASI. Um, some people call it AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, but that's actually different. The artificial superintelligence is what you sometimes call the singleton. So in 2020, Christianity Today published an article you wrote where you compared ASI to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, and you argued that we shouldn't spend time pursuing it. Even though lots of people are, why, Joanna, should we not? 
and what should we be doing instead? Okay. So ASI is the level of intelligence with the goal that it surpasses human. So if you run the Turing test, then you you have the machine and the human doing the same thing, then the machine will always be superior. Okay, so that's the singleton. Compared to AGI, it's equivalent, which is the, the goal of the Turing test, which is you you both play chess and you cannot tell which one is which. So Oh, that's that's a really good differentiation because I was sort of conflating the two. Yeah. And it's like as good as or better than. Right, right. And when we are not even AGI, right? So there is a 2016 <laughs> study that project that the based on their data, they project that 90% of the chance that we'll reach AGI by 2075. I probably wouldn't be around to see them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and 75% would project that 75% chance that it will reach ASI by 2105, which I'm absolutely long gone, I hope. So the core question remains, is ASI a function of time or is that a function of nature? I tend to think it is a function of nature because it goes back to your core belief of what is human. So I believe human is a body that has a soul. The soul includes your mind, your will, and your emotion that has a spirit. And the spirit connect with God when you reconnect with God, right? And if that is my view of human, then so far, AGI was aiming at replicating the mind. So far, AGI only tried to replicate the mind and no one had ever tried to replicate the spirit, okay? Or even come near to it. So that's why I assert that ASI is a function of nature because no matter how hard you try, there is a limit in terms of the spirit, I believe, is not replicable. The mind, some part of the mind, are you can externalize it and, and replicable, but not the total of it because the mind connected the spirit. Your spirit connected the mind. And so that's why I say instead of pouring all the scarce resources of AI to attain ASI, which I personally believe is a sunk cause because I believe ASI is a function of nature, then you have a huge opportunity cost, which is to apply the uh, advancement of AI to for the benefit of human. That is a huge opportunity cost. So to put it in a proper perspective, I said that, you know, AI fields started in 1950, okay? So based on those projections, one would ask, would 155 years to 2105 be long enough for a human-created intelligence to be superior than human intelligence created by God. I don't think so. And that's why I call it the Tower of Babel, because uh, it's always the human attempt to surpass what God created man to be, right? Which is also the essence of the Tower of Babel, to be like God. I agree. And I think there are other people that don't, and maybe it is anchored in worldview, if you believe that we've evolved from nothing to something, and then if we just keep applying time soon enough, we'll be at a at a different level. So yeah, this is another thing we could do an entire podcast on mm-hmm. and, and argue. Yeah. And to interject, right? So Kate Crawford in her book, the biggest mistake computer scientists ever made is to equivalent the human mind to a machine. And that presumption led us down to a very wrong path. Well, regardless of whether we're ASI, AGI, or whatever, we have seen some amazing advances in what we call AI recently, and, and particularly in the area of generative AI. And this is where it gets a little 
weird. Um, first, it was image generation with the, the dollies and mid-journey and stable diffusion. And the most recent buzz is around language generation, particularly with the um, recent announcement of ChatGPT, OpenAI's language model, which some people are calling the calculator for writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aside from all the immediate questions that these AI applications raise for people in, say, art or education, I think there's a bigger question, and I want to ask it to you. If AI was supposed to automate menial tasks so humans would be free for creative pursuits, say a human-only domain, what happens when AI seems better at those activities as well? And what does that mean for humans then? Kind of tying back into your last answer. Yeah, yeah. So humans are able to create because we are made in the image of God, because God is a creative person. So in the creative process, we often experience what we call the flow, the creative flow state. And that creative flow state interact with your spirit and your mind. That part can never be replicated. The mental state of being completely immersed, that you receive intuition, or even for some of us, we can receive divine revelation, that part of creative process can never be duplicated. However, generative AI refers to the unsupervised or semi-supervised machine learning algorithm in order to generate new data that follow all the boundaries of the model of the real data. So that's why it makes it believable. But we are able to know the difference because like what I said before, AI can never have causal analysis. AI doesn't include the scope of absolute truth. AI cannot elicit emotions. And so the best it could do is to synthesize data, to synthesize, like pull, like if you want ChatGPT to write a proposal, it will pull information from multiple sources and synthesize it. But it still lacks that spirit of the sizzle, like may it be the insight, may it be the understanding, may it be the absolute truth, or may it be something, uh, AI is still limited or not able to think in first principles as human can. So generative AI can be a great companion to um, evaluate and to verify or to synthesize so that we don't have to do all that research. But the insight comes from a human. And so the best use of generative AI is to use it as a companion, as a collaborative, accelerate your creative process. But the, the light bulb comes from the deeper part of human that sometimes can't be explained. Well, because you are who you are, I want to talk a little bit about how technology moves from theory into practice or from the lab to the market, as some people say. And it used to be called tech transfer, where universities and companies would have research departments and they say, how can we make this a product? How can we monetize this? So as somebody who holds no patents whatsoever, I'm intrigued that you've been awarded 49 of them for your work at IBM. And I also know that you're working on applying for some now for your new work. Could you talk for a minute about the process by which research becomes business and the role that patents play in that area? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, first I'll talk about research becoming business. My mandate being hired as the head of research in IBM Canada, my mandate is to take research outcome to commercialize into product. So that's why they IBM Canada at the time did not pick a pure academic to head the organization because they don't only want the academic part, but they want the academic part to be able to commercialize into product that can be put into the customer's hand that solve real world problem. From research outcome to commercialize product in users' hand is a very long journey. It involves many different stakeholders. And it's one of the, uh, so during the seven years of uh, tenure, my mind was so stretched because there is a science front and there is a commercialization front. On the science front, 
you need to understand what is the advancement of science that the paper articulate. And it often, as anyone in research, especially pure research, would, would tell you that the advancements of science does not relate to anything or anything, right? Or, you know, like someone come up with a Turing, come up with a finite state machine. Who knows? You know, it's kind of cute, right? Like, who knows what this is used for, right? So the key to understand the technical potential of a research outcome is the first. But that's where the academia stop. The mandate that I was given as the head of research for IBM Canada is industrial research because I was told my mandate is not to stop there because the executive quickly figure out I pay all this money and I have 40 papers published Where's the money coming from? <laughs> uh, <laughs> where's the return on the investment? So it cannot stop there. And so the second leg then is to take the research outcome, understand the technical potential, and be able to see the potential of application in a solution to a real-world problem. That's the science part. Okay. So once that's done, then there is a commercialized front, which is, is there a value add in this product that the customer is willing to part with their money to have? And that it has nothing to do with the science because earlier part of my seven years, I brought too much of the science into the commercialization front and didn't come across well because basically at the second stage, all you care about is how does it make my life better? and lose all the complexity of the science versus the first one. But you cannot not without the science because the science is your credibility, right? Like it's all the due diligence that, you know, if you apply this correctly, it did work, right? So it goes from a range of being a deep dive technologist to losing all the detail and coming over and say it in one sentence while you have years of work to make this happen. And you have to swallow your pride and say, swallow it and net out the last five years of research outcome into one tech lines that the marketing guy would say, I know how to sell it. And that's a long journey. So that's the, that's the journey. Okay. And so the commercial, the from science to commercialization is that journey. So let's talk about the role of patent. I did not start out wanting to be an inventor. I did not start out wanting to be a patent collector. Uh, I purely enjoyed the process of taking research outcome to a commercialized product that can be put in the customer's hand. That process initially was painful, but at the end, it's enjoyable. So I, I completely enjoy that process. So how I ended up being, you know, filing so many patents, the first go around was the IBM mobile commerce product that I worked with the re IBM research and did all the work and we were ready to ship and senior executive stopped ship my product. And I was so upset because, you know, I told you the journey of taking the research outcome to productize it. It's a very hard-earned process. And when it's now ready to be birthed, it was stop ship. And this is how it was explained to me, uh, that it was stop ship because the innovation inside was not protected. And if our competitor produced the same novelty in their product after us, and if we don't have a patent, they can sue us for loyalty, even though we were the first. So if I ship the product without filing the patent, then our competitor could come after us and know that we don't have a patent and see that we, we have the similar features. They can come back and sue us and there is no protection. Would that mean that they had filed the patent? Yeah. Because they can't, they can't sue you if neither one of you filed a patent. Right, right. So that's why the executive stopped ship my product because if I don't file the patent, it would do the company harm because it's up to be sued if our competitor filed the patent and we didn't. So I was kicking and screaming. I was like, I don't care. I just want this to be birth. And then once I understood it, okay. And in that one product, there was eight patents being filed. 
Wow. Eight? Eight. Just that one pattern. <laughs> it was eight pattern being filed. And so that started the journey. And then thereafter, it just keep coming as long as you keep working. So pattern is the, is to protect the right for commercialization for the first mover. Um, and learn it the hard way. Right. And I guess if you extrapolate downstream, it would also protect you against other people coming in without a patent, using that stuff and saying, we get to make money. And you say only if, well, how does it work? Do you, do you have to pay? Can you still use it, but pay the person who has the patent or can you not use it at all? So whoever has the patent has the commercialization right. So anyone who doesn't have the patent and want to use it, we have to pay loyalty. In IBM then, the patent loyalty paid by everyone in the industry was close to 10% of our earnings. Wow. Oh, that's that's significant. Yes, very significant. So yes, patents are protective and good. Yes. Well, okay. So without giving away any trade secrets, let's move on to what you're working on now. Uh, You've moved from working for IBM, which is a major tech company, and now you're doing startup work, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating. And your new work is focused on augmented cognitive assistance. Mm -hmm. You call it AI for me. Explain AI for me without giving away any trade secrets so that you can't get sued. How is it different from AI for everyone? Okay. And why would I want it? Okay. So AI for me is an obvious deviation to live according to what my assertion was, which is I do not want to invest the remaining days of my years to pursue ASI. And because of that opportunity cost, I want to use AI to, to benefit people. And AI for me is that space. So uh, AI for everyone is the app we use today, right? Like the app you use and the app I use are the same, right? It uses general algorithm and public data to give you services that is of your concern, right? So that's AI for everyone. AI for me, apply AI to my personal data with the goal to augment my cognitive capacity and reduce my cognitive load on what I care about. So a form, a more formal term is called augmented cognitive assistance. And the improvement can be measured because you can measure with or without it, right? And the improvement is called the augmentation factor we call A+. And the timing is right because later on you will talk about Web3. With the focus on personal data, it totally adds a different edge to the new web that we wanted to redesign. Mm, Okay. Let's go there because this is an interesting intersection that a lot of people don't understand. When they hear Web Web 3.0, they probably couldn't describe what it was unless they were involved in technology. But to put it in simple terms, it's kind of a massive decentralization of the internet. Web three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So some of us may know what that's about a little bit, and others may not. Can you give us a bit of education on Web three and how technologies that underpin it, like the blockchain, in addition to AI, will change our lives in the future? And and maybe tie this into your AI for me because there's a little bit of that in Web point three. Yeah, I keep saying the wrong thing. Web three point oh. Yeah, yeah. So if we think of the web like a car. The first car only drive from one block to another. And then you say, oh, if I want to accelerate by, uh, you know, five miles an hour, I have to do five actions in the shift stick within two seconds. And that's like, why don't you come up with automatic transmission? And then eventually now, like, oh, can we not use uh, fuel as car? And therefore, you have the birth of an electric car. So if we think of the web kind of like the car, we'll understand, right? I published the book called The Smart Internet in 2010. And then subsequently, uh, I, together with other professor, published another book called The Personal Web in 2013. I basically led the research team with professors from various universities from Canada and some universities in the States. I basically put out the question. I said, why we are happy with the internet? If I ask you a question, I expect an answer. 
But if I ask Google a question, you give me a bunch of link. Why should we live with it, right? And that's how the project got started. So, so Web One is a read-only map web, which is only HTML. Web Two is a interactive web with centralized platform. Right? We know every site we interact with, the platforms owned by them. Right? Like um, that's why. It's very different from productization in that, like Facebook, never give out their platform. Any of the big tech with Google, any of the big tech would never give out their platform. So it is interactive, but it's centralized platform with big corp, big tech, and big enterprises. That's Web two. Now, in my book, the Smart Internet, and in the book, the Personal Web, I did call out all this problem. It was ten years ago, <laughs> and um, we uh, so it's the same, right? In that uh, number one, why these big enterprise control everything? Why are they the bully? Why I have no say that my data has to be given to them? Why I have no control on my own data? Why Facebook dictate how my information is being published? And so, Web three is basically say, okay, we've used the internet long enough, and there are so many things we don't like about it. Let's fix it. It's kind of the big umbrella of that. Now you have to understand.、Uh, okay, so I'm dating myself. I lived through Web one and two. Okay, so in those days. Able to in Web One, able to display an HTML file. We high five each other. <laughs> in Web Two, when the first object from a database can be transmitted from one end to the next, that was only five hundred bytes. We high five each other. So that's where we came from. We, it's just like if a car runs and it's not a bicycle, it goes from one block. To two blocks, we high five each other. Like that's the car version, right? So internet is exactly like that, and that's what prompted me to publish the book, the smart internet and the the personal web, because it's been twenty years. Then it's thirty years now, and we are still at the bare bone function. Like there's so much more that's wrong about it, right? And so basically, Web three is a big umbrella term. To fix whatever we don't like, and then what you don't like, there is a popular view, and there is a more a silo view. So, for example, one thing we don't like about the web is that it is being monopolized by the platform. So that's why you see decentralization, like the DAO, the decentralized autonomous organization, the blockchain, and the The crypto become the key thing because we know that, like, we we don't want the platform to be the warlord of the internet. And that's why decentralization is a big theme. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that at the same time, when five、uh, when、uh, Web three is birthing, and no one has a autonomous. Claim what Web three is is what we want to make it to be to fix Web one and two. So without losing sight of five G AI and Internet of Things, totally change the world. If you apply that integration, then you really can have a really really smart home.、Uh, Web three is really fun right now because we know that's why. People like me, you know, even though I'm not a third year dropout from Stanford, I claim that my my contribution to the Web three is because I've made we've made all the we are part of the team that made all the mistakes in Web one and two. So we it's now time to say let's start over. We can make Web three really cool. And that phrase you just said、um, is going to lead into my next question. But I want to stop for a second and say. One of the reasons that I have resisted having a quote-unquote smart home is because I think I'm giving away my privacy.、Mm. You know, I'm even afraid to talk in front of my phone sometimes. But this Web three would and AI for me would hopefully resolve some of those fears of you know invasion of privacy and what is someone going to do with the data if it's not anonymized, etc. 
But that's the, I also know that when the internet was invented originally, it was invented for the military so people could talk. It didn't have this vision and it's morphed into this thing. So the idea of fixing it or patching the code to use um, technology terms versus starting over is an interesting question. So let's talk about the new book you've just published called Being Christian 2.0 Instead of Losing Heart, Let's Start Over. And I want to say I love your book dedication because you say version one is no longer supported. Fixes to bugs will only apply in 2.0. Please upgrade. <laughs> so what does software versioning have to do with the Christian walk, Joanna? Okay. So in the software world, if any product release minor fixes, they are called releases. So it's like, okay, you have one one dot one, and I'll give you a new release with minor fixes. That's one dot two, one dot three, right? So these are minor fixes. When major fixes are delivered, either because there are a fundamental technology change or a new architecture, we reversion to signal to the customer that this is a totally new level of product. And so, so that's the reversioning instead of new release, Delta releases. So that's where it came from. So when applied to 1.0, 1.0 of my being Christian is purely operating in the natural realm. There is nothing supernatural about being Christian 1.0. It's purely performance based. It's basically trying to do good on my own terms according to my understanding, uh, and that's it. So church volunteering is a big deal because that's how I learned that, oh, people who love Jesus volunteer at the church. So I volunteer <laughs> at the church to the wazoo, right? And so sooner or later, it crashed. It completely crashed because... There was no Holy Spirit. Well, I'm sure he's there, but I just kind of not bother him. And it doesn't go deep in the word. And there is no demonstration of power and the authority of Christ. And actually in Second uh, Timothy, that's a verse that that's a form of godliness, the void of the power. And we're like, that's a good description of being Christian 1.0. And so 1.0 of me is trying to use my own effort based on human understanding that is mine to be a Christian for God, regardless of what he thinks. That's, that's 1.0. <laughs> okay. And it crashed because sooner or later you run out on empty and there is no sense of purpose. There's a no sense of a higher calling. There is no sense of relying on God, trusting in his power. So it needs a major fix so that you press the reset button and go to 2.0. And 2.0 is very different. 2.0 is about letting God glorifying himself through my surrendering to him and letting him to do immeasurably more based on his supernatural enablement of me that people can see and say, it's not Joanna, it's God in Joanna. And that's the major difference. I got it. You mentioned church volunteering in that. And I know that that's a part of your book. And in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus tells a parable about a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to find one. But in your book, you have your own 99 to 1 ratio story, but it's got a little bit of a different twist. Tell us what it is and why you think it's essential for churches in version 2.0 of being Christian. Okay. So in for those of us who are still in our being Christian 1.0 days, we think going to church on Sunday morning is a good Christian. And if we watch our language, it implied that we see church as a religious institution with a building. That's not what Jesus meant about church. We look at Acts and see how Jesus spent his last 40 days. Okay, How he spent his last 40 days on earth shows you his priority, doesn't it? And if I were him, worry about how to build church institution until he comes back, right? In the remaining last 40 days, I would make sure I picked the best CEOs and gave them the classic church constitution to govern the church. 
such that the organization of church would keep running thousands and thousands of years until I come back. He did none of that. None of that. He spent the last 40 days on earth to talk about the kingdom of God. So that just gives you a sense of his priority. So he's not here to build church institution. He's here to build church as his people. So instead of saying, I go to church, we should have said, we gather as church. We gather as his people. And because Jesus didn't die for the institution as church, Jesus died for his people as church. And so sometimes we often fall into the trap of building the wrong church. So we spend so much time to build the mega church, the franchise church, the religious institution, the denomination. They, they turn out to be only earthly kingdom built by men. That's not the kingdom that Jesus wants. Church is Jesus' people. And so Jesus is the head. So most of the problem of the church, like I've talked to many churches and they unanimously, a lot of them told me, oh, my biggest problem is finding church volunteers. And I'm like, that's not your biggest problem. Like to see members of the church as resources and utilities to build for the building of the church as religious institution is not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus wants his spiritual leader to see his people as Jesus' sheep and trusted to be fed and trusted to bring up into spiritual maturity. And that is fundamentally missing, and therefore churches need a 2.0 for that purpose. So many churches are run by executive leadership, but there is a scarcity of spiritual leadership. If we are not guided by the Holy Spirit, we are disconnected from the head of church, which is Christ. So the consequence is that many Christians are not being built up spiritually and do not know our calling. They don't even know that they have a calling. They do not know why Jesus put them on the front line of the world. So the 1% is called by Jesus to build up the 99% in the full-time ministry and the 99% would be mature into their calling as they are being called to the various front line in the world. And so the shift needs to happen, which is instead of seeing the church as a building, as the playground, we should see the church institution as a training center to train people. Instead of seeing the 1% as the player of kingdom ministry, we should see the 1% as coaches of the 99%. Instead of seeing the 99% as volunteers or spectator, we should see the 99% as the key players in their playground in the front line of the world. So that's the church to Donald. Aside from your work in AI and your writing, which is a big chunk of your time, you've also founded a ministry called KOE. Specifically, your heart is for Christians in high tech, which as any of us know, is a hostile environment often enough for followers of Jesus. So what does KOE stand for and what's its purpose, Joanna? Okay, so KOE stands for kingdom on earth. The real kingdom that of Christ only have one version. And the primary purpose is three things is to awaken, equip, and support the 99% not called into full-time ministry, but called into the front line of the world. So awaken is to awaken the 99% that God has divine assignment for each of our life. That's the first awakening. Because you can know, you, it's not possible to live into the fullness of life Christ died for us to have without knowing our purpose. The number two is equip. The first is A, awaken, ye, equip. Equip is to equip them spiritually so that they mature and have the spiritual competence to be Christ's priests where God strategically situates us in the specific front line and created us for such a time as this. The third is support. Support the 99% in the situations that the local church are not equipped to support. So I'll give an example. Last week, 
40,000 workers in the tech industry has been laid off. That's a fact. Many are, you know, in the tech Christian program. We need priests in the industry, the mature Christian in the ministry, to minister people in the tech domain for such a time as this. Because we understand the culture, we understand the toxic elements, we understand what happened. And it is kind of unfair to ask the 1% to understand enough to minister to, right? And that's what KOE is for. Now, every industry has this stuff, right? So say um, lawyers, I know a bunch of lawyers, they have their own support group uh, so that when... and um, legislation that are against uh, the biblical teaching, they would gather enough of a voice to say it. Other industries should have their their KOE group, like businesses. Like how can we uh, be different to be anti-greed in the business, in the finance world, right? Like how can we not speak up when the greed would collapse the entire um, market like the 2008 crash. Where the heck are the Christians not saying anything, right? So that's what the KOE is for, is for awakening, equip, and support. And so you have a a specific call and vision for the tech community. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because when you talk about the 1% of priesthood, or the professional priests, as we've made them, across Christianity, I mean, there's some denominations that call them priests, other calls, others call them pastors or ministry leaders or whatever. But what you're proposing here is this, as you say, democratization, which takes a burden off of a small number of people, including the fact that lots of people in tech aren't going to go to a church. So they won't ever have a chance to interact with a professional priest. The only priest they'll ever interact with is somebody who's placed in their workplace. Yes. And if we say church is not a building to go to, nor a membership of an institution, and if church is, as Jesus meant it, gather as people, I have church in the tech community. Like when I need to make a tough decision, I know who to call to pray for. And they pray with understanding because they're in the same field, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's key. I love this. Yeah. Well, we could go on forever and I would actually like to, but we're closing in on time. And at the end of each podcast, I like to give my guests a chance to share some of the books that have influenced them, whether they're professionally or, or spiritually or both. So, Joanna, as we close, what are two or three books that have made an impact on you? And why would you recommend them to our listeners? Okay, at least four. Okay, I'm going to sneak one more in. Okay, so the first okay. book is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. This book is awesome. It grounded my spiritual gift in the Word with a solid framework to understand the Word that helped me from... Uh, not twisting the word in God. So this is the number one book. It totally is very fundamental to my uh, uh, faith. The second book I recommend is The Art of Listening Prayer by Seth Barnes, published in 2004. And um, this is another book that is very um, uh, important in my faith journey because it guided me to the discipline of listening to the voice of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Art of Listening Prayer. The third one is Boundary, Henry Cloud and John Townsend. The first edition is 1992. There is a new edition in 2017. It armed me with the tool to learn to love myself enough by giving me the permission to say no to others. Hmm. Very. <laughs> I I advocate every high school should make that a mandatory reading. Boundaries. Boundaries. Yeah, I really recommend that. Then the fourth one, the fourth one is also my lifesaver. The fourth one is the book called Original, How Nonconformists Move the World by Adam Grant. It is printed in um, 2013. So it validated my long journey as being the odd one in the cloud, in the crowd, and allowing me to accept myself uh, and give me energy to persevere 
embrace through the many, many rejections that are inevitable for anyone trying to do anything original. It gave me the bonus to continue to pursue my dream and that are often rejected by others without giving up or the original. And I realized, oh, okay, so I'm not that abnormal. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've actually met Adam Grant oh, at, a, wow. at a conference. Yeah. And he gave a talk and he's a, he's a really cool guy. Really, really good. Those are great recommendations. Um, is there any in the tech space that sort of formed you or is this, um, I mean, that's, that, that might be technical books that only people in computer science would be reading and getting ready for learning to code and things like that. Mm, okay. Well, the reinforcement learning textbook, I might have it right here somewhere, are pretty good. Design Patterns is another very good book. Oh, Design right. Patterns is a very good book because if you want to be good in your trade, you need to learn to take the, the mass you need to think in abstraction from the data, from the raw data. So I, I learned over time that uh, I thought everyone think in abstraction until I realized. No, no. we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you want to do your trade, because everything's come from proper abstraction from details. So once your model is right, uh, then innovation happens with the model. So Design Patterns by Eric Gamma and Richard Helm as a classic book. And that's a lovely way to put a bow on the podcast because design patterns are unique to God's creation. And AI is looking for patterns and trying to make sense of them. And so I, I bless your work, Joanna, in both... AI and cognitive, augmented cognitive assistance, and also in your ministry and your writing. You're just an amazing person to me. So <laughs> thanks you. for coming on the podcast today. And I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you, Gretchen. My honor and pleasure to share my heart today. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.